Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Gist Yarn and Fiber. I'm back. <laughs> Welcome to this week's installment of Contextualizing Textiles, a series that focuses on interviewing textile farmers and agriculturally based weavers, artists, and designers. This week on the podcast, I'm talking with Rebecca Burgess, the founder of Fibershed. If you aren't familiar with Fibershed, they are a nonprofit organization that focuses on regenerative regional textiles in Northern California. Fibershed started as a personal project of Rebecca's where she sought out a wardrobe that could be tracked within 150 miles of her location. And that personal project turned into a pioneering source for the progression towards a more sustainable, equitable textile farming industry. In fact, every farmer that I've interviewed this past year, with the exception of Julius Tillery and Sajada Epps, is a Fibershed farmer or Fibershed affiliate. So stay tuned for the exciting conversation. Hi, Rebecca. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast this week. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me here. Delighted. (laughs) (laughs) Can you start out by telling us about your background and how you found your way towards textiles, farming, and starting the Fibershed community? I got started, well, it's hard to say that there's a line in the sand where things actually began, but there was definitely some aha moments Uh, that culminated, I think, from a lot of different small experiences. Uh, By the time I was 19, I was living at uh, UC Davis, uh, going to school there, living in that community. And my roommate was from uh, Peru, and she brought a weaving culture in her bones, I think, (laughs) with her that um, inspired me to... um, to learn more about the intricacies of textile, what's in a textile, not just that it has a certain color or it has a certain texture or it looks this way on my body. Um, Those are all very superficial things that I, I mean, I don't think as a child, I knew the difference between a knit and a woven or really wool and alpaca or, I mean, maybe I knew the difference between cotton and hemp, but I was very ignorant. So um, a lot of this started to change for me when I realized there was an intricacy in the actual textile, that there was material in there that actually had to be uh, generated from some kind of earth resource. And I know it sounds so silly, but we're just, I was brought up in the suburbs and not taught these things. And I learned how to crochet and I learned how to sew, but I think being... um, child of the 70s, you know, polyester and acrylic and all of these um, fast drying textiles that my great grandma liked to put on the dry line because they they dried in minutes and nothing mildewed. Um, Mm. You know, she taught me how to sew and crochet, but she also was already using these modern textiles. And so I wasn't really given an advanced understanding about the material materiality. I was given technical skills, but not material uh, enriched, uh, information. So that started to change in college. I was in an ag school and in an ag school, you can take classes in tractor driving and weaving, and you can take the hard sciences as well and learn about molecules and, 
uh, point source pollution and <laughs> you can start to figure out like kind of how the world works um, materially speaking. And so I got to expose myself to to those um, components. I was also in school when, um, when the land-grant universities in California were really blooming in multicultural studies. So there were departments, there was Native American studies that I really took to. So I got to, to learn more about um, communities who had never lost their textile tradition, whether it was basket weaving with um, redbud and hazel and poison oak and alder dye and things that plant life that I knew well, but I didn't understand that you could use it to make watertight baskets. Mm. Um, So I learned about the land management regimes that were needed um, in college too, to to substantiate these materials that would create such a thing as a watertight basket that you could eat acorn meal out of. Like to me, it was such a revolutionary idea that plant materials could be used for vessels. And, um, so all of that was just like this, I really think it was college, you know, it was like getting out of um, my nest of, of kind of the doldrum of high school and really exposing myself to um, learning technical and vocational skills while also trying to, you know, get a liberal arts education to expand my understanding of um, all the other communities in the world to have much deeper, richer relationships with the earth. Um, so that, that I would say, I, I thank UC Davis for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's super interesting. I've never, or I haven't heard of a, a college agricultural um, institution that had weaving as an option um, and, and was um, contextualizing weaving through agriculture. What are some of the ways that the program kind of put you on that track? Well, it was interesting. Weaving as a course, um, a vocational course, we learned how to do computerized programming of patterns. And then that we were on these mechanical looms for some of our advanced training. They were actually giving us yarn to use. That was an offshoot of the, uh, the gap and old Navy. And a lot of the brands, um, were sending them scrap material. And our teacher just made an off the cuff comment, like, well, you know, that's all acrylic. And I was like, oh, what's that? What is that made out of? And um, it felt like plastic running through my fingers. Um, so, I, you know, the teacher there, Barbara, um, I think Barbara Showcroft was her name. You know, she was from this era when the textile community was burgeoning in Berkeley and Oakland in the 1970s when you could make a professional living as a textile artist. Mm. She was very connected to neolithic knotting practices that was her claim to fame um she made huge places for people to actually in your home you could get into these shaped it was like furniture that hung from the wall but it was all knotted it was like a hammock in these crazy shapes it was the most like otherworldly thing she didn't actually help me bridge to agriculture i wish davis was interdisciplinary but by default, they kind of are, even if yeah. they're not explicit, <laughs> because we had professors who were very, you know, from a lot of them commuted up from Berkeley and Oakland, um, had a back to the land ethic or a very progressive attitude. And then there were the agricultural professors who were very conservative. So it's funny, they didn't actually, the Twains didn't meet 
on a department level, but they certainly, for me, I cross-pollinated them in my own choosing of courses. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was really interested in that, that uh, interdisciplinary um, component of my education. So I pulled it together in my own um, practice more so than the school might have done on their own, which was fine. And I, I hope that we become more interdisciplinary for young people. I think we need to understand the agricultural roots of textiles for us to be able to live healthfully into the future. We need that awareness. Um, but I think I was just kind of by happenstance, you could say, or destiny kind of plopped into an environment where I would receive information, but it was really my job to weave it together. Mm. So would you say that that kind of bridged you into the project where you wanted to find regional textiles? You wanted to track, uh, I believe it was a regional blue in creating your own wardrobe? Yes, at UC Davis, they had um, an outline around the campus. There were small farms that uh, weren't on a curricular level, like woven into the syllabus of anything we were doing. But I would go to the farmer's market and I would see that there was a woman there. Her name was Elaine. She had a small sheep farm and she would bring hand spun yarns to the market. And I was like, whoa, how come I've been using all this acrylic garbage in my class? And then there's this farm adjacent to the school with all this wool. You'd think at least they would have let me know. <laughs> but I guess not. So um, I did start to see that there were gaps in the system, meaning community projects weren't being bridged into academia as well as they could have been. So it alerted me that there was probably a lot I didn't know about what was going on materially in my community related to textile um, production, fiber growing, dye growing. And so I just took to kind of figuring out, well, what are the, the spaces that I need to go and investigate on my own around, around this work? And I did end up finding that there were people who had access to natural dye books. Uh, friends, you know, I remember a friend was like, here, I found this book you might be interested in. And it had all these natural dye recipes from a Canadian dyer. And I realized I was as I would go out and look for some of these plants or I would go and online and I would try to find uh, an extract, a dye extract, that I would meet people who had stories about their natural dye practice. So I started to see an informal network outside of the academic space that was either, you know, had their own sheep, were practicing natural dyes in their own backyards. And it seemed like an undercurrent that I was very attracted to that undercurrent because I thought it was the tactility, the beauty, the naturalness, the way to connect with ecology through the art of making. Um, it was so viscerally exciting to me. And yet at that time, um, you know, it was just a bunch of seeds that were getting planted. I still hadn't fully expressed my, my interest in larger scale indigo farming. Mm. That was all uh, emergent still. Yeah. And how did you make your way to, do you have a farm now? I lease land. I live in the land of everything's very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I have always been um, 
yes, a, a, a someone who rotates around who's leased land. I've always in this process of being a, a land leaser or whatever you call leasee, I have always spent a lot of time doing more for the land. Like it, it's, it's a little saddening not to have a more grounded place that I can keep nurturing over a longer time frame. Mm. But I think, you know, it's just kind of, it's one of these trade-offs for living so close to these urban hubs and you know, it's my choice. I, I, I've learned to accept that I am creating my reality here and, you know, I'm going to lease land unless I move to a very much more remote location. And so I have this, um, this ability to do small scale farming here and, um, it's pleasing. I do Coreopsis and Indigo. Um, normally it's happening at this point every other year that I do the large crop. Um, because, uh, what's been allowed to happen for, for us is we have this shared composting floor that we built. And we actually, it takes us sometimes, you know, to, to coordinate our group. There's about four growers <laughs> to get us all to coordinate and compost our indigo together takes time. And um, so it's for me, I'm also spending time the summers I'm not farming doing business development curriculum and supporting our nonprofit, I should say, to do to serve in this way of developing business curriculum to help the other growers loft their projects. We actually, to do this well in my area, we're going to need a series of small growers. We're going to need about eight to 10 acres of indigo to really be able to viably extract indigo the way we want. And so part of my work is to get the nonprofit strong enough so that it can answer, it can, we can be um, an outlet and, for information and we can also be serving people if they have business questions. We hire business developers and um, people who develop economic models. So small growers who, who can focus more on just the growing than I can, um, my goal is to serve them. And um, that's been the near-term kind of twist of fate for me is to be more in service to a greater community than getting to maybe be as much of a small farmer as I would like to be. But again, mm-hmm. these are all just trade-offs, and that doesn't mean it's set in stone. It's just there's such a, um, a windy course towards getting to one's goals, which ultimately is I'd like to have a place where people from all over the country can come and learn about this work on the ground at a farm and stay with us <laughs> and be able to have a really beautiful experience looking at large-scale dye, food, fiber, integrated operations. And I'd love us to become, you know, a beacon of many beacons in the country where people can come and do hands-on practice. So t- t- still to be created. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds awesome. You mentioned that you every other year you do a large a large crop. About how much do you consider to be like a large crop of indigo? For us, for me and the other growers, it's between two thirds of an acre and an acre. Mm. Um, that's about what one person can manage if you're, you know, handling all the gophers yourself. We have a lot of underground mammals that like to eat indigo. <laughs> <laughs> and I do have to dissuade them. I do not poison them, but I have mechanically trapped gophers. I'll admit it is not a <laughs> vegan crop. <laughs> um, so there's just that oversight. So yeah, that's about the scale that I can manage 
while taking and tending to other responsibilities. And I'd say that's about the same for the other growers. And when you bring it together, um, you mentioned that you use a composting floor. Is that the Sakumo method? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. We put it on this floor that has rock, sand, rice holes, and clay, and different sized aggregate rock below all of those layers. And it creates this environment where you can put all your dried leaf uh, in a huge pile and you can water it because composting requires water. But as you put the water on this dried leaf, it percolates through all these layers and it keeps the compost pile from rotting. Mm. And it's really, it's pretty important because it's easy to rot these piles. Um, and I think this is why originally in the 1600s, the Japanese came up with this very intricate composting floor design because they were watching how the water if it didn't perk well, would kind of sit in the leaf and then it would, you know, it just start to, to rot and smell and go the wrong direction. So yeah, that, that floor has been essential to us being able to create a habitat for this thermophilic bacteria, which just start naturally populating the pile and they're heat loving. So they, they go in and they eat the cellulose away from the, what the leaf and they leave the indican. So you get this like blue black compost. It's the most beautiful, earthy, lovely material. <laughs> and the Japanese call it sukumo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, I've noticed a lot when I um, do research to find American growers of indigo, um, Persicaria tinctoria, which I believe is also what Japanese indigo is. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is, um, it's a the variety that a lot of people grow. Do you know if there's like a reason a lot of people tend to or within the current, you know, landscape of indigo dyeing, people are drawn to Persicaria tinctoria? Hmm, that's a good question. It's a plant that handles temperate climates well. So for California, we cannot grow the indigofera tinctoria that the tropical indigo I do mm-hmm. believe in South Carolina, you could, I, in some locations, because historically, what was that indigo farmer's name? Eliza? Uh, uh, yes. Yes. It's, uh, I think it's Eliza Lucas P. <laughs> yes, that sounds right. <laughs> I think she grew the indigo fera because she recognized the wisdom of... Um, you know, the, the slave community, uh, it shouldn't be called that, but that's what she was, of course, at this time working with. And they brought that wisdom and they had so much agricultural knowledge that was exploited by white Europeans. And, you know, there's the crime of all of that. And then there's also the the beauty that she was willing to kind of listen in and hear what the expertise was and create at least... Uh, a historical moment where that other crop was the tropical crop was brought here. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, that those are very small places in our country where that would grow naturally or would grow well, I should say. It's not mm-hmm. in, it's not a native plant. And then um, for us, the temperate indigo is what was recommended by Roland Ricketts at Indiana University. He had gone to Japan. He's a professor there. He, he 
worked in Japan, I think, for five, six years. He married a Japanese woman who was part of a, a family of weavers. And they've continued their work uh, in Indiana as dyers and weavers. And he works at the university, of course. But he really inoculated our work um, because he knew that that's what would grow well for us. And I have mm. tried. I have smuggled in tropical seeds from mm. Indonesia and places I shouldn't have. And I tried to grow <laughs> that plant and it just didn't want to grow. <laughs> Are you in Northern California? Yes. yes. Okay. Would it be possible to grow in Southern California or is it because it's on the West Coast that also affects its ability to create the tropical climate? That's a really good question. I think it's the humidity in combination with the, the summer heat that, that is what that indigofera likes. In Los Angeles, San Diego, it's um, so, so dry. The humidity is so low. I It's possible. Um those dyers I know down there, like, uh, I just know her by, I call her Instagram name, the Dogwood Dyer. <laughs> <laughs> and Graham Keegan, I know that uh, those wonderful Southern California dyers have probably tried, but I watch, you know, a lot of Persicaria getting grown down there. <laughs> so I think it might be too dry for, for the Indigofera. <laughs> yeah, I... um I'm in the process of looking for a specific variety that is uh, the variety that if it's not the one that is from Eliza, it's like an offspring of hers, but there's like a perennial indigo that I read about. So yeah, I've been looking and I've been weighing the the pros and the cons of like, oh, do I want to do Persicaria tinctoria? Do I want to do indigo fera tinctoria? Do I want to try this really rare seed? Um, (laughs) so yeah um but kind of going back to the beginning where you were talking about regional textiles and um the importance of um tracking things within our immediate surrounding can you kind of talk about how you organized creating these regional textile systems with farmers who have sheep um, next week on the podcast, we're actually going to have Sally Fox, who I know is a part of Fiber Shed as well, and she does color cotton. Yes, yes. I think in the beginning, it was that we were prototyping, and I think that that space of creating something new with fibers that might have been grown in the community for some time, but let's say it was a small farm, and I integrated um, this I did the, the one-year wardrobe challenge in 2010, 11, and that was a challenge to only wear fibers and dyes uh, and have that metabolized by labor in the community, myself and others, uh, who we were sourcing everything within 150 miles. Ourselves, our own a- um, social assets and material assets were all in this geography, and that prototyping experience is, you know, it didn't have any economic pressure around it, really. I did a Kickstarter campaign to raise some some funds to pay for the fiber and to cover everyone's basic costs creating these things, these clothing items that I then wore. But what I think that experience did is it took, it just took all the pressure off. It wasn't like, are you making a business? Are you not making a business? Are you growing your business? Are you shrinking your business? Are you going to work with so-and-so in perpetuity or not? It was more like, 
everyone just got to come to this kind of party of ex- of self-expression and creating with these materials and it, there was like I said there was just no expectations around what would happen next mm-hmm. and I think when you take expectations off in the beginning at least in the beginning when people are getting to know each other I mean obviously you need the social contract to firm up a little when you start getting involved in in projects to to create more service and more accessibility of these materials. But in the beginning, we were very lighthearted about our self-expression. And I think that's an important starting point. Um, And I wasn't trying to create a business out of their work. Um, And that was probably another great value in the beginning was, um, like I said, I wasn't utilizing their work as a way to bolster a business I was running. <laughs> mm. um, and while that there's there's nothing wrong with exchanging and having commerce, but like I said, there just wasn't a lot of um, pressure to develop commerce in the beginning. <laughs> so that might be part of how we got warmed up. <laughs> yeah, that's super interesting because it is, um, there's a lot of pressure when you are a farmer where you're weighing the pros and the cons and you have to think about how you're going to pay for things and there's this conversation about how you can bring it to market and um, within the textile community or just the general community on a global scale, you know, textile in the fashion industry, the natural textile movement really, I guess it's kind of in competition with a lot of the more cost-efficient, cost-effective synthetic fibers and, you know, this whole entire other part of the fashion system. So Mm. I definitely understand um, what you mean when you're talking about thinking about it more as affecting the community um, and how that is very valuable, you know, really in the way that we kind of look at systems and the way that they work today. What would you say are some of the ways that you've been able to keep um, your farming practice um, ethical and sustainable? What are some of the farming techniques that you use? Good question. And thank you for your comments about (laughs) the community experience. And I would just add that at some point we have had to get serious about business in multiple ways and we can, we continue to refine that as the work grows um but in terms of the sustainability on farm um one of the things that uh i'm very committed to is building soil health and that soil health value has um really come from learning from some agroecologists in my community who've been biodynamic and organic farmers for a lot of their career and there's just I don't know. I think there's like more uh, more species in a teaspoon of soil than there is like in a, above ground species in the Amazon. I don't know if that's wow. actually true, but you know, like those are the memes you see. And I don't know if there's like it's you know exact, but it really points to even if it's not an exact correlation, it points to really how dynamic the fungal and microbial communities are. And when I started to see how the indigo composting was working, where we were reliant on these thermophilic bacteria just to show up if we created heat. And, you know, it's like, okay, we're just going to create some heat. And 
these bacteria come around and then they do this job for us for free. (laughs) Um, You know, what other creatures are around that I can't see with my own two eyes and that are serving this work? Mm -hmm. And what do I owe them, you know, in reciprocity? And modern farming has stripped a lot of that reciprocity away. Nitrogen fertilizers are common in commodity and industrial ag and small-scale ag too people use these synthetic fertilizers and they they strip it's like fast food for a plant Mm. you know and the roots don't get to go out and really hang out with the fungal networks that then go out and find the right mineral like the selenium and the phosphorus that the plant needs you short circuit the plant's ability to go and find what it needs through these superhighway networks of microbial and fungal communities. If you just shoot the plant with everything it needs, like a test tube, it it disavows those relationships below the soil. It says, no, you know, those aren't needed. We'll just pump you through with synthetic chemicals. And what we're getting is food that is not nutrient dense mm-hmm. because it doesn't have the minerals that those fungal networks and microbial communities would normally attract to that plant. Uh, We're we're getting fiber that is not heirloom quality. We're getting cotton that breaks easily. We get wool with brittle spots. Um, We can get indigo that doesn't have good quality pigment. Um, So all of this to me is about how we treat the soil, which is fundamentally how we're giving back to these microbes and fungal communities that do so much for all of our civilization to exist with on within and on. Um, so I think about everything as like, what am I giving back to the soil? So I try to do minimum tillage. So I'm not oxidizing all the fungal networks. Um, when I till, I go down about three inches tops and then I cover it immediately with a layer of compost. Mm. And I only till the first year in the rows where I'm going to plant. Mm. I leave between the rows Um, untouched so that the microbes and the bacteria and all the things that are under the soil in those untouched areas, they're not disturbed. And then they can go repopulate the areas I've just disturbed. Um, So I make sure I have healthy populations of underground biomass adjacent to where I'm going to grow my plants. And that just is, like I said, just disturbing the rows. Compost applications in the winter, um, using cover crops, Using eight or more species of cover crop is really good because they say the more above ground diversity you have in your cover crop, the more microbial diversity you have below ground. It's like you're feeding the whole community, the more plants you can put above ground. Um, Interplanting um, and intercropping. So making sure I've got indigo and then I put some coreopsis in and then maybe I put some food plants in. Um... And so I've designed this system that it's very artisanal and, you know, it's not the way I'm doing it right now. If I had the right equipment, I could scale up the model. But it, right now, because of the scale I'm at, I can't run equipment. So I do a lot of it by hand, mm. all of it really by hand. So I think for, for me right now, to the next leap would be jumping up in acreage and getting some equipment help and still keeping those values of soil health and honoring that I don't want to disrupt everything too much. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, thank you for that description. It's amazing. One of the things that I, that I also read about a term that I don't hear often is uh, carbon negative. 
Mm. And I was wondering when you're doing that, are you mulching or anything like that? So, yep, that is part of creating these carbon negative fibers or dyes. Um, We focus on basically how... Um, how much carbon we, we use um, a, a computer modeling system for some of the work to really show this for if we're working with a brand. Mm-hmm. Um, so this works pretty well if you're engaged in a large scale project. You can you can actually do one of thirty five or more. You can actually do many of these practices. You can stack the function of many practices all in one farm. But we we look at thirty five different practices, which does include mulching. Um, it includes composting. It includes putting in hedgerows often, um, maybe a windbreak, um, making sure your creek, if you have a creek nearby, you're making sure that that stays well-nourished with native plants. It's all these kind of ecological function-focused practices. And what we've done on some farms we've worked with is we've modeled, It's it's um, we've designed what this farm could look like if they mulched, composted, cover cropped, did their windbreak, and we feed all of that data into a model called the Comet model. Hmm. And then the Comet model spits out like, oh, based on that soil type, those GPS coordinates um, and that acreage, this is how much carbon you would be sequestering every year just by doing things this way. And then you can subtract your emissions. Um, and emissions could be using on-farm equipment. Um, some of our modeling includes, if we use um, and if we work with animals to graze down our cover crop, we take into account the enteric fermentation, mm. which is the methane. Um, so all of that can be modeled and measured. Um, we use the Comet tool, as I mentioned. But... Um, that helps us understand that it is possible to sink more carbon into the system than you're emitting. So we, I guess there's a better term for it, but we call it net negative. <laughs> but it means because more carbon's going down than is coming up, right. which is good for our atmosphere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> do you have any new projects or things that you'd like to talk about? Any new things happening within the FiberShed community? Well, no, we're just, um, oh gosh, we are expanding carbon farming. Um, we're starting to work with hemp projects. Um, yeah, that's about all I have at the moment. <laughs> Do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts who want to support the Fibershed community? Um, I, let's see, words of wisdom to support oh i think just being open to collaborations within your community thinking about the scale of what you're doing um, that small is powerful and that starting small and organic leads to amazing things and so i would um, just encourage people to let their ideas grow um, through their collaborations and through their love of where they live (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) That's a wrap. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. For links to Rebecca's site, as well as to find other ways to support Fibershed Farmers, you can reach her by visiting our show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode dash 49. That's 
that G-I-S-T-Y-A-R-N dot com slash episode dash 49. Next week on the podcast, Sarah is talking to Lauren and Cass Hernandez, the sisters and weaving duo behind Crossing Threads. Make sure to tune in next Monday for that. And until next time, happy weaving! <laughs>